So uh, tonight, uh, I want to look a little bit at this um, one of the Eightfold Path, which is called uh, Appropriate Efforts. And often it's seen as the four great efforts. And I would like to connect these four great efforts to meditation in daily life. Because for most of you, tomorrow, that's what's going to happen. Meditation, mindfulness in daily life. The three trainings Stephen talked about in daily life. And so the four great efforts uh, are stated as such. Once a wholesome, beneficial state as a reason, sustain it. Second one, before a wholesome, beneficial state as a reason, how can you help it arise? Once a, a wholesome, difficult, painful state as a reason, letting go of it, before a painful and wholesome state as a reason, how can it not arise? How can you help it not to arise? So that's the four great efforts. So the first one is about sustaining. So in a way we feel well, at peace, clear, kind, compassionate, creative. How can we sustain it? And that one actually is your easiest effort. That actually to sustain a beneficial state, you generally just need to be aware of it. That's what is very interesting with that one. That if we notice, if we bring mindfulness, this creative awareness to our daily life, we will notice that yes, time to time, some of the time, we are kind, we are happy, we are peaceful, we are appreciated. And in a way, just the awareness of it, without grasping or identifying with it, allows it to continue. And this is something I would really recommend to explore in your daily life. To notice, in a way, when there is this beneficial state. And to notice you actually don't have to do much to sustain them. And it's a little the same as when you are on a retreat, actually. When you are on a retreat, Time to time, you might experience what one would call beneficial meditative state. So for example, you could be sitting in meditation, for example, and suddenly you feel really quiet and clear. And generally, if we experience this uh, deep quietness and clarity, two things happen. 
The first one is, wow, great, great, great. This is amazing, this is amazing. And then he goes. <laughs> oh, oh, how can I deepen it? How can I push it? And again he goes. And then the only thing we need to sustain it is just to be with it. And actually this is a cultivated effort. I mean, I have to learn to do this. Because at the beginning, I would experience these quiet and clear states. And I would be, wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and every time, poof, they disappeared. So then, I realized I, to sustain it, I just had to be with it. And the image that came to me was in a way the image of a father or mother with a child. He, you can hold the child too tight, and then the child is going to cry. Or you can hold the child too loose, and then it's going to fall. And it's the same with this beneficial state of in meditation. It's an art. It's having this effort of, you could nearly say, not doing, but attending. So in a way, attending with, in a caring way to what is going on. And what is interesting is if we, if we do this, then this just continues. Until at some point, like all things, it will pass. The condition for it disappears, and then another state can come. And I think it's the same in daily life. That actually when we're aware in this caring way, the thing itself actually sustains itself longer. It's very interesting to be aware, oh yeah, right now I am peaceful. And just to be with that experience. Oh yeah, right now I'm kind. I am benevolent just to be aware with that. And so in a way to see that, I would say this is the easiest effort in daily life, in terms of meditation. We just have to be aware of it. Because often we take this for granted. Oh yes, often we think, oh it's not enough, it should be bigger, or it should be greater, or it should be more creative, or whatever. But it's there. Can we just attend, accompany it? And does that accompaniment, then gently it will sustain itself. And also what happens is that if you're more aware of this uh, wholesome beneficial state, then in a way you have more confidence that you're experiencing them, that you have the capacity to do it. So it's kind of like a, a self-feeding uh, loop, in a way. That if you recognize it more, you're more attended to it. Then you think, oh yeah, I can be peaceful, kind, etc. And then it's like, oh yeah, there is more confidence in it. And then, again, it's more likely to happen. That's very interesting, that effort of sustaining. We've just attended.
just awareness. Then you have the next one, and the next one is, can you help the condition so that a beneficial state, which has not yet arisen, is more likely to arise? So here it's really looking at condition, and kind of in a way bringing mindfulness to condition. And I think here it's also looking at what we've developed today, uh, we developed during the retreat. So in a way, during the retreat, we were mindful of the breath, we were mindful of the body, of the sound, we were doing the appreciative joy, we were also doing the questioning. And so often the question is, but why all these different things? And then the next question is, in daily life, do I sh should I do everything at once, or should I just do one? And personally, I feel each of these anchor has a little different effect. So for example, if the breath suits you, generally it's calming. The body is generally grounding, in a way bringing us back to something which is, in a way, uh, organic. The sound, it opens us, cultivating receptivity. The re rejoicing is helping us to appreciate what is there, instead of being focused on what is not there. And the questioning brings brightness. So, in a way, in terms of practice in daily life, because personally I feel this effort, what is it that's going to help me so a beneficial state is more likely to happen? And I think meditation can help us there. This is a tool for that. And so in a way, each of the anchor can help us to bring a beneficial state in a different way. Sometimes we can just cultivate being aware of the breath, and that will have this will help us with a calming, a calming state, a peaceful state, might be more likely to arrive. Or a grounding in the body might help us to be more stable, to be more grounded, to be more here. Listening to sound might help us to open. Questioning might help us to, in a way, disentangle, to kind of bring clarity, to bring brightness. And so in a way, <coughs> we could cultivate these because they have that little different effect. And so in a way, in terms of this cultivation, which might help us in our daily life, I would say there is two different ways to go about it. One way is that actually one suits you better, and that's what you go for. So that most of the time, if you do your practice, sitting for more practice, then you go back to the breath or the sound or the question, whatever works for you. Or 
you decide, oh, maybe I want to develop calm. I want to develop openness. I want to develop brightness. And then, intentionally, you will cultivate one of these things which is more likely to have this effect. So to see that in a way what we're suggesting during the week is also a bit like a tool, a toolkit to bring to help that appearance. At the same time, I think, with these efforts, I think one of the things we can look at also is another aspect of the Eightfold Path, which is appropriate speech, what I would call creative-wise, compassionate speech. And there, I think there is such a great area of exploration in terms of this effort, in terms of looking what is it that helps me to speak in a kind, calm, clear way. And so I know for some people being in silence uh, might have been wonderful, for some other maybe a little uh, difficult. But to me, one of the things I learned from being silent, like when I was practicing in Korea, we did a very long retreat, and generally they were not in silence. But the reason they were not in silence is because you basically sat 10 hours a day, you slept six hours, and so you did not have much time to speak anyway. (laughs) And so the time you had to speak, you know, have a little tea, you ate in silence, that's the only time you, you were in silence, actually, formally, was when you ate as a group. And so you just had a kind of a little time where you could speak during a little free time. And so one day, I decided, you know, I would be really spiritual. And so I decided I would be silent for a month. So I was silent for a month. And what I learned from that, what is a great learning uh, I received from that was... After that, there was this space with speaking. Like before, it was like speaking. It's interesting to bring mindfulness to speaking. What happens when we speak? A lot of the time, we speak faster than we think. That's strange, isn't it? You know, that's a very strange thing. You know, you suddenly see yourself saying something stupid, and you think, you know, why did I say that? <laughs> And because suddenly there is something, kind of like a little excitement, or I don't know what it is, and then kind of the wisdom goes out, and you say something, and you think, hmm? And what I learned also uh, from being in silence for a month was to ask myself, do I need to say this now? Do I need to say it in that way? How, how important is it that I kind of, you know, say my opinion or my view of this? And so, for, so to me, this is what is interesting with the silence, is that it brings a little space. It kind of breaks a little bit the automatism we might have with speaking. So we might want to speak. And we might be speaking fast or we might... I don't know, we have kind of, it's interesting to look at what is our automatism with speaking. 
And how can mindfulness, how can awareness meditation help us to speak in, in a way which I say is, would be creative, would be wise, would be compassionate, would be appropriate. And so I think that also is interesting to look at in terms of this effort. What are the conditions that are more likely that I will speak in a calm way, that I will speak in a clear way, that I will make sense, this is kind of helpful, or that I will speak in a way the other person is going to listen. Because in a way, when we speak, generally we don't just speak for ourselves. I mean, we could speak just for the sake of speaking. Sometimes people do that. And uh, my mother has a friend like that. Uh, when she phones her, it lasts an hour, and you can't, I mean, you can't place a word. She just, it's kind of like nonstop. Uh, it's amazing. And here you, there you really feel kind of in a way it's nearly like she needs to speak to exist. And you're just there as a kind of like a little decor. <laughs> and so, in a way, if we don't want to do this, if we don't want to do this, then in a way it matters. It seems to me that when we speak, that generally somebody is listened to us and would not be one of the aim of uh, the speech that the person listen. And then that's what is interesting. You know, in what way can I speak that the person can hear what I say? Because that's the first thing. Then the second thing is, how can they understand it? Again, how are you going to say it so that they can understand it? I mean, this is what I'm working with at the moment, working with uh, the people who are really new to meditation. And I have to speak in French, and I have to find words. For, I mean, they're very kind, so they listen very easily. They're very nice about that. But the next thing is, can I find words so that they can understand, and then, then they can put it into practice? So in a way, that's, a, that's the first thing. Can the person listen? And then here, what is important is the tool. And in terms of the appropriate speech, that's what the Buddha was really pointing out, you know. In what tone do you speak? Do you speak into a tone which is not aggressive, or which is not superior, or which is not, in a way, kind of looking at what are the tone, the quality of the tone, which then, very likely, the person might shut off, or might feel a little uh, anxious. You know, it's interesting, what's the tool? And then, uh, I mean, I have lived in different cultures, and then it's very interesting in terms of tool. Because in some culture, you really need to have a very soft tool. And in other culture, you can just, you know, have a very kind of, you know, little louder, little straighter tone. And people think, yeah, yeah, that's a good speech. You know, they, they don't want something which is too soft. You know, so it's interesting because the tone can also change according uh, to the culture, according to the different people. 
So can we adapt? Can we adapt skillfully, creatively, the tool to whom we are speaking? But then the tone is going to be influenced by how we feel. And then we can, that we can rarely see uh, there a lot of the Vedana. That's where the Vedana really comes in, in terms of speech. It's really the tone will depend very much on the Vedana. So if you have a relatively neutral, pleasant Vedana, it's very likely that the tone will be generally quite agreeable. But if you have an unpleasant Vedana, the tone changes. I mean, we can look at ourselves in shops. You know, in shops, so when we get a phone call from somebody selling us something, that what's the, what's the tone of uh, these people? Or if you are trying to get some number and you go through lots of, you know, press three for that, press two for that, and you know, you spend ten minutes and then finally you get a person. And then by then what's a tool? <laughs> <laughs> you engage in person. I find it so fascinating. Kind of tone. What is a tone which will help the conversation or not? And then again the word we use, the how the person can understand us. So I think there there is a whole area of looking at what are the conditions that are going to help us sell. And I think what one thing we can notice is stress generally is not very helpful. Being very busy is not very helpful. And then what are the qualities which are helpful? So it's kind of in a way we each have very different lives, very different conditions. So it's within our condition, what is it I could cultivate which will help me toward this creative, wise, compassionate speech? Then you have the, the third effort. And the third effort is once uh, a difficult, painful, unwholesome state has arisen, let it go. We talked about this the other day, so I won't go very much over that. But I think in a way here, we have to be careful of uh, thinking that whatever we might have gained during the retreat, it's partly impermanent. <laughs> so, you see, on a retreat like this, hopefully, it was, you found it beneficial. And generally, you will have a little effect. Most people generally find a beneficial effect from these retreats. And so generally, uh, so you could say this is like kind of like the force uh, effort and generally people find that for a month or two they kind of you know little more patient, little more understanding, little kinder, and then slowly, slowly disappear. <laughs> so in a way, on the retreat, we can have this quiet and clear state, or we can suddenly experience that you love everybody without distinction, you know, because generally. We love, I love those ones, 
I love those ones who I'm not so sure about. <laughs> but it's wonderful when sometimes we see it and we realize, ah, there is nobody. I could not love. It's an amazing feeling. Or when we understand something, we have some insight. And so, and so we have this feeling like this inside should, be, should change us permanently. I mean, it can change us partially. But I would not say permanently. Once I was uh, on a retreat teaching and there was this lovely uh, young man who comes to me, very excited. He said, my thought, my thought, they're not me. This is so great. I want to be like this forever. I said, mm, this is a nice experience. I'm not sure it's going to last long. <laughs> and so in a way, what is a little... Um, strange or disturbing is when we've been on a retreat and we might have experienced really beneficial, wholesome states. And so we have the feeling that, yeah, those negative states, we leave them behind. You know, we leave them at Gaia House. Mm. And now we go, yes, in this <coughs> creative, wise way. And then suddenly, one day, you're so upset. You plot revenge. <laughs> oh, once uh, last year, I had this funny thing. I really, I've, I'm often I'm busy at home. I have to take care of my mother, and then there are other things to do. And so I was plotting to go to town, to the big town Bordeaux, for a month. For a month, I was plotting whatever, and then I have to do this, that, that, that. So I had a list like that. Uh, and so finally I go to town, leave early, I get to town, and so the first shop I hit is, you know, the Apple shop, I need to get this cable, and I kind of go into the shop, and and I'm kind of, and then, you know, it was not fast enough, I go to another shop, and, and so I go out of the shop, and then suddenly I stop. And suddenly I had this thought. If these people in the shop knew I was a meditation teacher, they would be really, really surprised. <laughs> because I was like a kind of... <laughs> and, and then I thought, okay, okay, okay. I could see why I was in this... I have all these things to do. To, finally, I will do them. And I thought, okay, okay. Just relax. Come back to the breath, come back to the body, one thing at a time. And then I was much nicer to people in shops. <laughs> and much more patient, too. So, you know, it's to see that if the conditions are quite fine, then we'll generally be very nice meditator and Buddhist. But if the condition becomes otherwise, then, you know, we'll have certain automatisms. And so you know, we need to be careful, because uh, also sometimes people feel that when they, they're in these negative states, these painful, harmful states, that they failed. That they failed as a Buddhist, or they failed as a meditator. But not at all. It's just, it happens. And so, you know, a part of the letting go is just seeing it, seeing what happens, what's going on. What are the conditions? I'm not always like this. So just kind of trying to understand what happened. And then, again, trying to bring maybe the, the tools 
from the first one, to help oneself, to calm down, or to understand. And then you have the, the fourth effort, which to me is a wonderful effort. And this is the effort to cultivate in such a way that a negative state, harmful state, is less likely to happen. And there really again is to, for us to understand that this is not stopping us to experience anger, anxiety, or whatever it might be, but to really understand that they are conditional. These efforts are really about conditionality. They're really about understanding change. They're really about understanding that we are a flow of condition meeting outer condition. And to me, this is one of the beauty of the teaching of the Buddha, is that it's really an exploration of condition. So it's not kind of trying to reach some unconditioned mythic reality somewhere. It's not trying to make us into a permanent something but trying to understand the condition that more, are more likely to make us this way or that way. And so in a way, it's kind of like bringing as much attention, you could say, to the beneficial scale as to the harmful one. And so in a way to understand if one becomes angry, what creates that? How does it happen? If one becomes anxious, how does that happen? If one becomes irritable, how does that happen? So in a way, trying to understand how things come together. And then it doesn't mean that we will avoid unpleasant, harmful state, but that actually we might, I would say, minimize their intensity minimized a little their likelihood. And so in a way, I see this a little kind of like a preparation, kind of understanding our weaknesses, accepting our weaknesses, accepting our limits. To me, this is something I found very interesting to explore is limits. Because often, in the spiritual life, they can have this idea that we must become heroic, that we become 100% compassionate all the time, regardless of anything. But I think what this practice teaches us is that we have limits. Other people have limits. But then the limits, it's interesting how we can work a little bit with the limits. So sometimes we can go a little beyond the limits. But we cannot go all the time beyond the limits. I think we have to be careful. We cannot be all the time heroic, compassionate, giving, clear, or whatever it can be. And so in a way, to see what is my limit within which condition. And to me, that's what I explore in terms of... Uh, I can have a tendency at times either to become 
irritable or to become impatient. So you would think, well, somebody who sits 10 hours a day for 10 years, who is a meditation teacher, she should not be impatient. You know? She should be patient, number, you know, square. But actually, to me, that's what is interesting to look at. That, you know, generally, yes, you know, I'm patient. I mean, I'm a meditation teacher. I should be patient, you know. Uh, and also, yeah, I have become more patient, that's for sure. But sometimes it's interesting. You are patient, yes, it's okay, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay, it's okay. And suddenly, I mean, one moment you are patient, and next moment it's gone. <laughs> I find that fascinating. What happened there when it's gone? So sometimes you can be patient an hour. Sometimes you can be patient five hours. And sometimes you can be patient five minutes. And it's interesting to look at that moment of suddenly it's gone. And it's not there anymore. Or compassion is gone, or clarity is gone. And so in a way, in terms of this effort, is looking at the limit. Accepting the limit, working within the limit, and also noticing what helps to sometime make the limit a little greater. And then what seems to bring it back a bit. So that I think is interesting with that effort in a way. And then finally what I wanted to look at in detail is what does it mean to practice in daily life? What does it mean to meditate in daily life? And generally, what people understand is that it means to sit in meditation in a special place with a special candle, possibly with a special incense, and be very profound for at least 20 minutes, if not more. But is it? Is it? I mean, it might suit you. It might suit you. It might be what you do. But so, uh, I think what is very important in terms of practice in daily life is to see you have formal practice and then you have informal practice. And then within the formal practice, which I would say, you in a certain posture, you do a certain technical activity, you could say. You're anchoring the breath or in the sound, you're aware of change in a certain way. So you do something similar to what you've been doing during the week. So you formally sit, but you have to also see that you're not, the practice, formal practice, is not reducible to sitting. You have four postures. Sitting, standing, lying down, and walking. And these are very important to see that. Because let's say you sit all day in your work. Do you want to also do sitting meditation? Or would it be better to do lying down or standing or walking meditation? So really to see, you can even, if you want to sit a little bit, why not? And then you can also walk a little bit. You can also stand or lie down a little bit. 
So try to see that you have these four postures to do this formal meditation. Also, sometimes you don't have much time because you have lots of responsibility, you might have a family. And then one of the easiest ways to meditate is lying down when you go to bed and you, when you get up in the morning. So generally you can do five or ten minutes. So in a way, instead of how can I fit meditation, how can I kind of, you know, um, force meditation in my life, I would say, how can you fit it? How can it fit in your life? If you have only 10 minutes, 10 minutes. If you've got an hour, sure, you can sit an hour. But the, the length is not the point. It's very important to see, in a way, what, what do we do when we sit formally at home? We're actually doing three things. One is actually we stop. That's one of the interests in the sitting, the standing, or the lying down. Or walking in a mindful way. This is a little different than walking and you think of something else. So generally the idea is that we stop and we are still, in a way. In, because we, in daily life, we have a lot of identification with moving, acting, creating, task-oriented. So we generally have a lot of identification with that. If I move, I exist. But time to time, it's good to experience ourselves as not doing anything. Doesn't mean that all the time, we must be sitting and doing nothing. But time to time is good to, okay, I just stop for its own sake. And so there is a value, I think, in this kind of sitting, this moment where there is a certain stillness to it. Then the second aspect of uh, sitting formally at home is that it reminds us of our value. What is it that we value? So in a way, when we sit, we're kind of reminding ourselves, I value clarity, I value compassion, I value mindfulness. So it's kind of just reminding us of that. And the third element is the fact that we cultivate. And here we have to be careful to see that we meditate for, let's say, you meditate for 10, 20, or 30 minutes. So you meditate, let's say daily, a little daily schedule, let's say you sit 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. So you sit, for example, you sit, and immediately it's like, mm, yeah, sitting, yeah, meditation, yeah. Mm. And so just taking the posture, there is a taste of meditation. And then within less than a minute, you are everywhere but meditating. So in a way, part, we have to be careful here. Are we meditating to have the effect of meditation? Or we are meditating to cultivate, anchoring, and looking deeply? In a way, we meditate to cultivate, anchoring, and looking deeply. And then it might have an effect there and then or later on. But to be careful with that. Because generally I would say if you sit at home, 
unless you have a very quiet life, I would not say your sitting will be as calm as on a retreat after six days. Generally, the, the sitting is a little more kind of a, it's kind of a little more lively, I would say, because of the conditions are so different. We have to see that in a way when we're here on retreat, we have the condition of the silence, of the schedule, of the group, of the teacher, of the place. So all that contributes in a way to this calming, clarifying effect. And generally in daily life, we don't have those. So then in a way, the, the state, with time to time, we can have a taste of the meditation as we sit. Then to die, I just sit at my desk, just for a few minutes, and ah, there is that little taste of meditation. But often, it's very hard not to think about what you're going to do later or what happened yesterday, because you are much more active. But it doesn't mean that you are not meditating, because time to time you come back to the anchor, time to time you notice change. So that's what formal meditation. But then we can use formal meditation in daily life as a tool, like with the second effort. So we can use coming back to the breath in the middle of a busy day to ground ourselves, to calm ourselves. We can listen to sound to help us to be with sound in a different way. We can use a questioning, possibly to be lost in a story and just suddenly to ask, hey, what is this? Is this true? So in a way, we can then use this tool of anchoring, of looking deeply, in the day, at time. And then there is a whole scope of awareness meditation, mindfulness meditation. And here, we have to see that we can be mindful in two different ways. We can be mindful in a specific way. So then, it's kind of like you're mindful of the feeling of washing your dishes, or you're mindful of just sitting and resting, you're mindful of listening to somebody, or we can be mindful in a general way. And that's an interesting thing to play with in daily life. That in a way, there is a type of mindfulness which is much more general. So it's kind of more like, um, I would say, an attitude that you bring to whatever you are doing. That you be gardening or cooking or working, kind of bringing that general mindfulness of what just being here. So you know, a general mindfulness which would bring a little bit of that caring attitude, but also would bring that presence of mind, that sense that you would be present in a general way to what happened. And then within that general awareness, at some point you might be aware of something more specific. You might be more aware of suddenly you're having this thought which are agitating, or you might be suddenly aware of somebody is doing this or whatever. So the way to see that in terms of informal meditation, we can play with these two elements of either being more specific or being more general. 
And so you have to be careful not to think that being mindful in, in, in daily life is actually having a little policeman or policewoman <laughs> on the shoulder peering at, woo, you're mindful, you're not. And if you're mindful, you must be mindful of everything to the same degree. And then it becomes really tense, you know. And this really is not the idea. The idea would be more that whatever we are doing, we're trying to be in the experience, and if we can, in a multi-perspectival way. So not to see the mindfulness as just be mindful of me. Not to just be mindful of my flow of condition. To me, one of the important parts of the practice is that it helps us to be as aware of ourselves as aware of others. Of course, we have to be careful there is only so much we can know of somebody else because we're not inside themselves and they're not inside ourselves. But I feel part of the meditation process is in a way becoming more attuned to ourselves but also more attuned to others. And so, but in a way, again, which is caring and which is not grasping. Because we have to look like we have, we can have. Sometimes, uh, you know, often people say, you know, I can't concentrate, or sometimes people say, I can't be mindful. But actually, we can concentrate and we can be mindful, and sometimes too much when suddenly you kind of like raid the light, looking at everything in case they're thinking badly of you. Very interesting when you become self-conscious. What do they think of me? Are they thinking this? Are they thinking that? And I'm not talking about that. When I say to attune to people, I am not talking about in a way kind of thinking about what other people think about you at all. But more, can I be aware of others for themselves and not for myself? Because often that's what happens when we kind of encounter others. Often we see them through our lens, a very tiny lens. And so in a way, part of the meditation process is to open that lens so that we see the tree for itself. We see the person for, for themselves. And so to me, that's part of that general mindfulness to be aware of the environment, to be aware of others. And so in a way, you are yourself in it, but with others. And that can become quite uh, interesting to see how it, it shifts. Sometimes it goes toward that wide, caring, open, mindfulness where people are also in there, attuned to them, and then see how time to time is, what about me? What do they think of me? How do I appear? It's very interesting to see how you can be general like that, and then poof, it's reduced. And then we can open again, and then poof, it's reduced. And then in a way all this 
becomes part of the practice in daily life. So. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.